So, amen. Um, we're back to the Gospel of John, and uh, that's what it says there, Kata Johannes, uh, which is according to John, the Gospel of Jesus, according to John, and and uh, we we're, we're finally in chapter one after three classes of background, but, you know, that was great. It's great to know the background, because, of course, you're going to be discovering these things and seeing these things as we read through, and as I've been reviewing the Gospel myself I'm just so blown away by it. There, there's just so many great things there. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's a box of treasure, you know, and you're just pulling out this dime and that one. And, and really what I have to do, I have the sad task of figuring out which ones are we going to look at? Because, um, if I were to cover every single treasure in here, this class would probably take about eight months. So we're not going to do that, but, but we'll pull out some of the rubies and some of the emeralds. Okay. And uh, we'll leave some diamonds in there for you to study on your own and discover yourself. Um, but um, uh, we're going to go ahead and jump on in. Uh, I think this is where we were about last at. Uh, I think we got all the way to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or as it says in, 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 in Greek, the logos, right? The logos became flesh. And just to seal the argument that that uh, we're talking about Jesus. And remember at the very beginning, it says, in the beginning was the Logos, right? And now he says down here, the Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And and the first thing I got to tell you is, this is the, even this right here is a huge statement because uh, there were people, uh, well, you have to understand that the Greek mindset was that there's the spiritual world and there's the physical world. And the spiritual world is all that is good and right and holy. And the physical world is all that is evil. And so for the Greek mindset, for something from the spiritual world to become physical, that's a big thing. That's a, ooh, no, that can't happen. So this challenges that. This lays it out because there were a group of people, I think, I believe they were called the Docetists. And, that that believed that Jesus came and he wasn't in the flesh and um and that he was more like a a spirit he was like a ghost that everybody saw everybody hung out with but that he never became flesh because god forbid anything spiritual become flesh because the flesh was evil according to their mindset so john makes sure to make it very clear no 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 the the logos made his dwelling among us it became flesh it became human, carne hueso, you know, flesh and bone, um, and and dwelt among us. And of course, there's scenes where he eats and he drinks and he's sharing food. All this to to make it very clear that Jesus came in the flesh. Again, you have to remember what what is considered blasphemy or what what is considered, you know, the antichrist or any or or ungodliness in any kind of doctrine. Why the Bible tells us. To really be careful about doctrine is it's very important that we understand who Jesus is and what he is, that he's not, he wasn't just a prophet, a mere man, but he also wasn't just a spirit either. He wasn't a spirit from God that came and, and hung out with us and then went back. He became man. He was the spirit of God. He is God who became flesh. And and you have to understand all that. That's no small thing. That's That's a very important part of understanding Jesus, that he became fully human. And if you're listening to the Hebrews studies at all, then you you know that. And you, he spells it out crystal clear that God became, uh, that, 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 that Jesus was the incarnate of God, the God in the flesh. 
So he says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. Okay, remember I, I had shared about the monogenatos, the, the, the uniqueness of Jesus. We are all children of God in a general sense, but then there's the monogenitus, the one and only, the unique one that was born of God. Okay, so in a very real sense, he came from God, out of God he came. So, and he's the only one that has that title. Nobody else has that title. We do not share that title with him. We are called the children of God, but we are not called the monogenitus of God. In fact, the word mono means it can only be one, right? Like monopod or, or monogamous uh, or monopoly. You know, somebody has one control over something, one city, one, one relationship. So the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. You know, um, this is a very important theological statement in the sense that um, I, I shared this a little bit before that we all have tendencies. We some of us tend have a tendency more towards grace and love and mercy and kindness. Some of us have more a tendency towards truth and righteousness and holiness. And we have, you know, some of us are more liberal by nature. Some of us are more conservative by nature. Some of us are more tightly wound. Some of us are more loose, you know, and that we don't worry about all the strict rules. We have different personalities, and that shows up in a lot of different personality profiles. Um, it also shows up in simple things like our parenting. There's usually one parent who's the disciplinarian and another parent who's more the positive reinforcement we need to hug them, our kids more, and and let's inspire them instead of spanking them. You know, usually there's one of each in a family, and there's that tension that parents have to balance out. And that that shows up a lot in religion. You know, some religious people are known for their strictness and their discipline, their devotion to truth and righteousness. And that's that's what draws them to God. And that's how, in a sense, they see their religion. It's all about the truth. It's all about righteousness. And then there are others that really see our religion as, well, no, it's 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 about mercy and kindness and 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 love and grace and those are the things. And, and in fact, some would even categorize the Bible that way. Well, the Old Testament was God laying down the truth, laying down the law, and and punishing the wrongdoers. And then the New Testament. Of course, God becomes a Christian, and now he's all about grace and mercy and kindness, and he's very patient and kind. Well, that's a gross overgeneralization because God is merciful and kind in the Old Testament. Same God, he has not changed, and he's also holy and righteous and exacts punishment and disciplines those who need it in the New Testament. Ask Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira if God isn't intense, if God doesn't doesn't hold people to what's right. So same God, but people tend to lean towards one or the other. So here comes Jesus, which is he? Is he more conservative and righteous and all about truth? Or is he more loving and mercy and kindness and grace? The answer is yes, he's both of them. The son came from the father full of grace and truth. He comes and he is 
full of mercy and kindness. He's so patient. He stands up for the woman caught in adultery. He reaches out to the woman at the well. He doesn't condemn them. He chooses Matthew, who is who is a fallaway kingdom kid, to be one of his apostles. He's just so patient and he's forgiving even Peter, even Judas. He's just very gracious, very kind all the way through. And yet he is full of truth as well. He comes to correct what's wrong. He's he's the Jesus of the seven woes in Matthew 23, where he rebukes the Pharisees and and the experts of the law for their misinterpretation, for their legalism and their hypocrisy. He's all about things being right and being true. Uh, being authentic, being real. So, you know, the, so which are important? They're both important. They're like the two w- wings on an airplane. You have to have both. If you have, if you have truth and righteous without love and mercy, it becomes harsh and overbearing, judgmental and harsh. We've, many of us have seen or experienced that kind of religion. If you have love and mercy without truth and righteousness, then it's just a bunch of emotional, sentimental, ooey-gooey stuff that doesn't really help anybody. It makes you feel good, but it doesn't transform your life. And it doesn't help you overcome sin. And and it's powerless, basically. So you have to have them both. Why? Because all of that comes from God. All of that is the nature of God. One of the big mistakes we make in the world today is we try to we try to break down God like a scientific study into categories. Oh, he's this. No, he's this. He's this. He's all of that. And and you have to understand that you cannot know the truth of God without knowing God's love. And you cannot practice God's love without without understanding the truth. You know, somebody once said truth without love is is burdensome and crushing. You know, you just have to have them both, right? So we keep reading on, and, and here's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to jump around a little bit because, again, like I said, we don't have time to read every single verse. As much as I would love to, uh, we just don't. And so I'm hitting some of the major things in each chapter. Uh, chapter 29, I mean, sorry, chapter 1, verse 29, says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave his testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen. So a couple of important things here. Um, you know, one, that we're talking about John the Baptist, right? Not John the Elder, John. I mean, John the Apostle. We're talking about John the Baptist. And he says, look, I, he says, I saw Jesus coming and... And, and when he saw Jesus coming, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, what did he mean by the Lamb of God? Well, we know that on Passover, at this time, a lamb was sacrificed, right? And if you remember the story of, of Passover, uh, if you didn't read it, and hopefully you saw one of the movies, 
um, where they sacrifice the lamb and they put the blood of the lamb over the doorway. And and the when the angel of death came through, wherever he saw the blood of the lamb, he passed over that house. So it was the Passover, right? That they were spared from death. The firstborn did not die under the curse. And 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 so at Passover, a lamb was slaughtered to to basically pay for the sins of the people. And it had to be a perfect lamb. It had to be a lamb without blemish blemish. And, and this was the lamb sacrificed for the people. So what does John the Baptist do? He sees Jesus says, look, there's God's Passover right there. There's God's lamb. The one that his blood will be sacrificed for the people so that they will, so that the angel of death will pass over them so that the, the, the penalty of death, which is sin, the penalty of sin is death will be passed over on them. So, Jesus is very much tied to this and is the continuation or better said, the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, right? And he also says something else very important here. Um, well, first he, he you, you notice he, he keeps saying that that's, that, that he keeps lowering himself, right? Earlier we're introduced to him and say, he's not the, the Messiah. And he knows he's not the Messiah and never claimed to be the Messiah. And then here he's, He's saying, uh, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. Now, you have to understand, John's movement was huge. He had already made uh, made a lot of disciples. He had a lot of followers. People knew him all over the country. He was a very well-known individual and, and very popular. And a lot of people were following him, including our guy right here, the Apostle John. A lot of people had become his disciples. He was a radical prophet uh, from from in the style and in the in the way of the old prophets, speaking the word of God, telling people what God was saying. And but he was making it clear. He became so popular that some people were, were thinking he was the Messiah. And he wanted to make it very clear that he was not the Messiah, that he had come to prepare the way for the Messiah. But he says. But in verse 32, it says, then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit. And he talks about when the spirit came down on Jesus. This is when he baptized Jesus. And uh, in verse 34, he ends it saying, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So he's like this. I'm a witness to who this is and, and, and what God is doing with him, that he's the Messiah, right? Not that John's the Messiah, but that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's very important because, because John had a large following. And so basically he's pointing to Jesus telling everybody, that's the guy you need to follow. You know, that that's the one you need to go after. This whole idea of witness, this is uh, also something that's important in the gospel of John. That, that John, uh, John strengthens his testimony with witnesses. And and that word is used. It's used twice in here, but um, if you if if you were to go through, you know, he talks about the Father being a witness as to who Jesus is. He talks about Jesus Himself being a witness to Himself, the works um, that He does, being witnesses of who He is, the Scriptures witness who He is, the prophets witness who He is, the people witness who He is, the disciples witness Him. And the Holy Spirit witnesses for him. I mean, they're all 
witnesses testifying that he's the Messiah. Okay, and that's a that's a very important thing. You've you've heard the the, the group called Jehovah's Witnesses. That's where they get this. They get it from the Gospel of John that that they are supposedly God's witnesses. There's a couple problems with that. One, its name is not really Jehovah, and and secondly, that the witnesses are all lined out here, and in a sense, we are all witnesses, right? I am a witness to many, many things that God has done in my life. I am a witness to many, many things that God has done in other people's lives. So when I I can go out and tell people what I've seen and what I've heard, and I am a witness of God. I am I am somebody who's a witness of Jesus, that he's the Messiah. I can tell you about people who were drug addicts and boom, stopped like that. I can tell you about people who have, have never been freed from hatred, even racism, and whose hearts have totally been turned and changed because of the gospel, because of Jesus. I can tell you people who were who were just totally chained down by fear and insecurities who've been set free and who've changed and been transformed by Jesus and marriages that were about to be divorced. I mean, literally like within days that turned around, became united, happy families, kids that hated their parents turned Hearts turned and become happy family. I mean, just so miracle after miracle after miracle. I'm a witness to all those things. So there you go. I'm a witness. Now, interesting thing about what the word witness is, is in Greek, it's the same word as martyr, which, of course, the witnesses later on were put to death for sharing their testimonies. And that word and ended up being known as the people who died for their cause, the martyrs. But what it really means is it's a witness. You're a witness to this. So, so it's an important concept in the book of John that, that, that there are witnesses who testify. They witness that Jesus is who he says he is and what he is and, um, and verify his word. So now we'll jump to uh, verse 35. It says, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When, the, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, "Look, the Lamb of God." When the two disciples heard him, they said, "They heard him say this." They followed Jesus, turning around. Jesus saw them following and asked, "Why do you? What do you want?" They said, "Rabbi," which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went with him. So they went where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about the four. It was about four in the afternoon. So, so again, John sees them, and, and, and we hear the Lamb of God. This is John making it very clear. I mean, he's basically testifying who's Jesus, what is his role here in the world. And the two disciples heard him say this. They they followed Jesus. Um, this the, we're, we're we're probably talking about John here. And turning around, Jesus saw them and said, "What do you want?" They said, "Rabbi," which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. And they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. This is this is you have to understand that the how people learn things in ancient times is they became disciples of a teacher, right? Or, or the teacher in this case would in, in Israel at this time would be called rabbis. So every rabbi had his disciples. John had his the 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 prophet John the 
John the Baptist had his his um, his disciples, and and he sees that he sees Jesus, and he points out Jesus, and some of his disciples begin to follow Jesus, as it should be, as it's supposed to be, right? And um, and they do what any disciple will do. What do they do? Well, they go hang out with the teacher. I mean, that's that's the mark of a disciple. A disciple wants to be with the teacher because the goal of a disciple is to learn everything he can from the teacher. And 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 the ultimate end would be to become like the teacher, right? And that's what Jesus is making very clear. Later on, he says that, that it is good, it is enough for the te- for the disciple to become like his teacher. That's the goal of this. So it's interesting because it even tells you what time of day it is, which is, you know, this is the cool stuff about a wet, an eyewitness report is you get details you don't get when it's just passed down, right? That's four in the afternoon. Who would, who would know that? Well, somebody who was there would know that. Somebody who was there would know exactly what time of day it was. And, and so you get that little, little, little detail there from John. And we keep reading in verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. So now we find out it's Andrew, uh, Simon's, Simon Peter's brother. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon. And he says, we have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Um, one little interesting tidbit here is, you notice how it translates that. That is the Christ. Um, clearly, John is writing to a people who maybe aren't familiar with Jewish titles. Messiah was a Jewish title. The Greeks had no concept of Messiah. The Romans had no idea what a Messiah was. What's that? What's a Messiah? Um, And so he tells them that is the Christ. The Christos is the anointed one, the one who's to become king, the one chosen by God. That's the closest terminology there. So, So Messiah he, he gives a translation for, and you'll see that in other places where the translation is given for, obviously the readers are not just Jews. They're not just people who know all the terminology. But the other thing we notice here is that, that what, did, what did Simon do? Well, he went and got his brother. Why? Because he loves his brother and he found the Messiah. This is what a disciple does. A disciple beats Jesus and they go and make more disciples. They bring more disciples. That is the very natural thing. We call that evangelism, okay? It's 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 reaching out, it's it's recruiting, it's it's sharing the gospel, it's telling other people, it's bringing other people to church with you. It's it's actually a very natural response. If you meet Jesus, what are you going to do? You're going to go tell other people about it. If we see a great movie, when I went and saw Star Wars, you know what? I told every friend I had, you got to see this movie, right? Because I loved it. I was so impacted by it. That's what what's what we do when we see a great movie. We tell everybody. We get all our friends. We see a new series come out on Netflix. We tell everybody. In fact, we even take delight in that, being the first to tell people, oh, have you seen this series? No. Oh, you got to check it out. It's great. You know, da, da, da. It's what we do, right? And and if you're not telling anybody about Jesus, that tells you, that's got to say something about your relationship with Jesus. You're not that excited about it anymore. So you really want to get back to being excited about Jesus. Why do you do that? Study his life out. Get to know him better. Trust me, Jesus is not boring. Your relationship with him might be boring, but his, but he is not boring. 
And usually how a relationship gets boring is when you stop trying to grow in it. When you're not growing, you're not putting time into it or effort into it. But trust me, you put your time and effort into knowing Jesus, it stays exciting. Because Jesus is awesome. He's incredible. And the more I get to know him, the more I get excited about him. I mean, the first time I went to church, I heard a sermon about Jesus that just flipped all the light switches on in me. And since then, and that was 38 years ago, I have been on fire for Jesus. And it goes up and down. It's not every day. I'm super excited. But when it starts going down, man, I dig in there and I make sure it goes back up again. I fan it back into flame to, I study out, I read another good book about Jesus. I, I get to know, I read something else about him. That's why, that's how I discovered the book of Hebrews was just trying to get to know Jesus better and, and, or look in in Isaiah for Jesus, find him in the old Testament. Well, that's a great study. So there's lots of different ways. So the first thing Andrew did was to go find his brother, Simon. We have found the Messiah. That is the Christ and brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means, which when translated is Peter. Okay, here we go again. John's putting translations in there so that makes sure the Romans and the Greeks understand what's going on. Here's, here's, here's a really cool thing is that Jesus has a vision for everybody. Simon, okay, Simon, we, we don't know much about Simon, but if you kind of watch his character and his personality through the gospels, he seems to be kind of the, the loud mouth emotional guy. He's the first to, you know, get out of the boat and try to walk on water. He's, he's the one that says things and gets in trouble with Jesus. He tells Jesus, you're never going to die. We're going to make sure you don't die. And Jesus rebukes him. And he just, he's, he's like the, he's the guy who puts his foot in his mouth regularly, right? Very emotional. He's the guy you, you love to have in class because he's the one who raises their hand and asks the, the questions you didn't want to ask. And the, and it made me look stupid, but everybody's glad he's in that class because that way you all get the answers. That's that's kind of Simon's aggressive personality. Most people like that are tend to be up and down. So what does Jesus call him? He calls him Peter or Cephas, right? Now the, here's the funny thing: Cephas means the head. That's the head, but translated, it's Peter means the rock, the rock. So this guy who's known to be unstable, <laughs> known to be up and down, maybe wishy-washy, maybe not solid. Peter looks at him and says, I'm going to call you Rocky. You're going to be Rocky now. You're going to be the rock. That's who Jesus is. So Peter Petrus is the little rock. That's important. See, Jesus has a vision for everybody. And Jesus knows what we can all become. And Jesus, Jesus believes in people. He's the one who saw Matthew, the tax collector, kingdom kid who fell away and turned his back and betrayed his people. And he says, follow me. And he puts him on his mission team to change the world. He sees James and John, the sons of thunder, the two guys known for bad tempers and anger. And he sees John and he makes him the apostle of love. That's, a, that's awesome. And Peter, the unstable emotional guy, becomes rocky. So Jesus has a vision for all of us. He has a vision for you. That's great. We got a lot of ground. We got all the way through chapter one. All right, so we're ready to go tomorrow with chapter two. So take care. God bless you. And stay safe, please. Uh, please, please, please make sure that you're staying safe. 
God bless you, and we'll see you tomorrow.